after his resurrection, Luke records that Jesus met with his disciples. And he told them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Today we are returning to a reading and a study that we began during the time of Lent. We stopped at Holy Week and we're now resuming. We are looking at the prophets of the Old Testament. We read earlier from Romans chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul spoke of all that was said by the prophets concerning Jesus in the scriptures. The prophets are rich. They are filled. Every prophet had something to say about Jesus. And so we are returning to this study. The prophets speak of Jesus. We are reading from our Immersed Bibles. This week we will begin week six on Wednesday. The Apostle Peter wrote, This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this glorious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what the time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. Note what Peter is saying here. The prophets desperately wanted to know more. They wanted to know specifics, the time, the situation. It was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ within them, who was speaking and revealing the things that they were writing. But they did not have the context to fully understand everything that was being said. They were writing things about Christ's suffering. We have seen and read some of those. But they were also writing about his great glory, the glory that accompanied his victory over sin, his resurrection from the dead. Now, we have already looked at a number of the prophets, so let's take a moment and review what we have seen. We have read Joel, Amos, and Micah. And in those prophets, we have gleaned these truths. The writings of the prophets serve to warn us of the depth of our sinfulness, our utter inability to be right with God, and the absolute law that the wages of sin is death. Thus, they prophetically anticipate an accomplishment of salvation and righteousness that could only be accomplished by God himself in the flesh. By way of example, we have the words in Micah chapter 5 that revealed where the Messiah would be born, the one whose origins are ancient from before time, who would become the redeemer and the shepherd, of those he came to save. We spent a couple of weeks looking at the words of Isaiah. 
Now, the prophecy of Isaiah, as we noted, is sometimes called the fifth gospel. It contains extensive messianic content, prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it, has, it gives great clarity in those prophecies about Christ. In the first 39 chapters, God documented the incorrigible sinfulness and the inevitable judgment of every nation and people group. We saw how in chapter 40, the focus shifted to God's provision of hope and salvation. We saw the prophetic announcement of the coming of the one who was known as John the Baptizer, preparing the way of the Lord. This promise of hope and salvation would be made singularly possible through himself. We saw how God declared again and again, I alone am the Redeemer. I am the Savior and there is no other. Isaiah's prophecy details the nature of the Messiah's sacrificial service. The glory of his kingdom and reign and setting up a new heavens and a new earth. And it's in perfect correlation with the New Testament presentation of Christ. The last prophet that we considered before Holy Week was Habakkuk. And in the short prophecy, the short book of Habakkuk, a dialogue takes place. A dialogue between God and Habakkuk. Habakkuk is filled with consternation about all that he sees. And he brings this before the Lord, his distress, his complaint, his uncertainty, all of his wondering. And in his response to Habakkuk, God revealed what we saw is the bottom line for every person in every era of humanity. The righteous will live by faith. Past, present, and future. 5,000 years ago, 2,000 years after Jesus, 100 years from now, this remains the bottom line. The righteous will live by faith. And that standard we saw is referenced three times in the New Testament, teaching us that one, we can only be righteous with God through faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice. Two, we must live a life of continuing faith in Christ. And three, we must maintain this perspective of faith as our tenacious perspective. One that we don't let go, ease up on, or ever get distracted from. It is essential if you and I are going to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. This relationship of being right with God begins by faith, and it continues by faith. May you always be faithful, full of faith, and consistent in your faith. 
Today we are going to come to Jeremiah. And we are going to be particularly looking at chapters 31 through 33. And if you have your immersed Bible, it begins on page 265. But we'll also be sharing the references so that you can look these things up within your reference Bible as well. But in Jeremiah, we are going to gain this presentation of God and of Jesus. Our God is the ultimate promise keeper. In fact, he is the only promise keeper who has ever existed. The prophecy of Jeremiah is an extraordinary prophecy. If you haven't yet read through it, I encourage you, this week, find the time to read through this prophecy. Jeremiah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, by this time, the northern kingdom of Israel, remember there had been a civil war, there had been a division of these nations. The northern kingdom, by now, has been conquered by the Assyrians. The capital, Samaria, destroyed. The prophecy concerning Samaria, which was built on a high hill, that its stones would be poured down the side, literally took place. It was no longer in existence. Every prophecy spoken about it had come to fulfillment. But the southern kingdom of Judah has not learned from what has happened to the northern kingdom. And so God calls Jeremiah to prophesy. And his prophecy takes place over a number of kings, beginning with the godly king under whom there was revival, Josiah, until the very final king, when the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem in their third siege and leave it in rubble. Not only was Jeremiah a prophet, he was also a priest. During a time when there were few priests to remain faithful to Yahweh, and during a time when there were few in the entire nation of Judah who were faithful worshipers of Yahweh. That role as a priest who offered sacrifices for the sins of, pe of the people made him acutely aware of the egregious transgressions of his people and the terrible consequences of their sin. And so we read Jeremiah's laments and his tears and his longing for something to heal his people of the wound of sin, the sickness and disease of sin, which is beyond cure. Jeremiah at one point said, Oh, that my eyes were an endless fountain of tears. He had cried until he had no more tears left as he wept over the sinfulness of his people. That leads you and I to ask a question. When was the last time that we wept over the sinfulness of our land, the sinfulness of our culture, over the people around us, who are transgressing against the ways of the Lord. 
and are thus destined to experience the judgment of God. The foundation of Jeremiah's prophecy was the covenant. Now, the word covenant means a sacred promise and agreement. We think of contracts and legal documents that we put together. And a covenant was that, but more. It was sacred and binding. If you and I made a covenant, it would be binding not only upon you or I, but upon our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren, up to seven generations. They would be accountable for keeping the terms of that covenant and adhering to them. Covenants were made typically between someone who was stronger and more resourceful, and someone who was weaker and needed the resources of the one who was stronger. And so they would enter into a formal agreement. There would be certain things that were done to establish that covenant and set it into effect. And the one who was stronger would fully commit himself to the weaker. And the one who was weaker would fully commit himself to being faithful to the one who was stronger. Now, God made covenant with his people Israel. Remember that they were slaves in Egypt. And because of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, he promised that after 400 years, these people who were weak and helpless he would deliver them by his strong arm and his mighty power. And he did just that. And he brought them to Sinai, and there at Sinai, God made a proposition to them. I will make a covenant with you, and I will be your God if you will be my people. And the people entered into a covenant relationship with God, one that was binding upon them and upon their children. Israel would choose to be faithful to God as his chosen people out of all the nations of the earth. They promised that they would love him and serve him with all of their hearts, that they would obey his laws that were not only laws, they were not meant to be restrictions but they were meant to reveal his ways, his righteousness. What made him so much different and preeminent above all the gods of the surrounding nations? And God in turn promised that he would love, protect, and bless Israel for endless generations. We read these words in chapter 11 of Jeremiah's prophecy. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, Remind the people of Judah and Jerusalem about the terms of my covenant with them. For I said to your ancestors when I brought them out of the iron smelting furnace of Egypt, If you obey me and do whatever I command you, then you will be my people and I will be your God. I said this 
so I could keep my promise to your ancestors to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you live in today. Now, every covenant, whether between humans or between God and people, included violation clauses and penalties, just like your credit card agreement or a mortgage contract. Israel betrayed her covenant relationship with God by not loving him with all their hearts. They pursued their own ways, their own desires, their own ambitions. They worshiped other gods. And God sent Jeremiah through the streets of Jerusalem to proclaim this message. And we read in chapter 11 these words. Then the Lord said, broadcast this message in the streets of Jerusalem. Go from town to town throughout the land and say, remember the ancient covenant and do everything it requires. For I solemnly warned your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, obey me. I have repeated this warning over and over to this day. But your ancestors did not listen or even pay attention. Instead, they stubbornly followed their own desires. And because they refused to obey, I brought upon them all the curses described in this covenant. Israel and Judah have both broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring calamity upon them, and they will not escape. What dire words. Their actions in abandoning their commitment to God, in breaking their promises with him, had now meant that there was an inevitable and unavoidable judgment because they did not keep the covenant with God. Every prophet represented the one and only God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. That name Yahweh was the most sacred name. It was the name that indicated that God was a covenant God who had promised that he would always love, always be present, and always be faithful. And as a representative of Yahweh, Jeremiah declared God's message of covenant faithfulness. And he declared that God would uphold his promise to judge his people for their unfaithfulness. But God also promises that, quote, he who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. He declared that his love is an everlasting love. And that he is a God of unfailing kindness. And that the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. 
But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, when we look at Jeremiah, his life, his heart, his ministry, his experiences, no other prophet is so closely identifiable with Jesus. For example, both lived and ministered in a time of political upheaval for Israel. They both became enemies of the state and were exiled to Egypt. They were both falsely accused and were arrested and beaten. Both were rejected and persecuted by the people of their hometowns. Both rejected the corrupt worship of the temple and its priesthood. Both wept over Jerusalem and its impending and inevitable judgment. And both proclaimed the hope that would come and could come only through a new covenant. From the beginning of time, there was a covenant dilemma. The dilemma that exists now between God and his people who had broken the covenant that he made with their forefathers that was binding upon them and that they were proclaiming every time that they uttered the name of Yahweh or went to the temple with a sacrifice just like you and I, whenever we come to the Lord's table, we proclaim his death, the covenant that has brought us into relationship with him. So here's the covenant dilemma. You know, throughout history, every era of God's interaction with humanity has been on the basis of a covenant, a sacred contract. God always works in that way with people. He has no interaction with people. No interaction with humanity apart from a covenant interaction. So you and I can go back to the beginning of time and then move forward throughout human history. There was the covenant of creation. And whenever God made a covenant, there was always a primary person, a key person, who represented the rest of humanity in the making of that covenant. And God made a covenant with Adam concerning creation and man's role of representing God in creation. And then he made a covenant with Noah, a covenant that had implications and blessings for all the nations. Remember that after the flood, there was only nation, Noah and his sons. And they were the fathers of all the nations that would come. There was the covenant of blessing that God made with Abraham. When he called him out of his culture and his background. And he told him, I am going to make of you a new and a special nation. 
And I will bless those nations who bless you, and I will curse those nations who curse you. And then he went further and said, from your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then follow the covenant of law. The one that God made with Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. We read of it in Exodus chapters 20 to 25. And then again, Moses reiterates it in its entirety. In the book of Deuteronomy. Before the second generation enters the promised land. And then God made a fifth covenant. A covenant of lineage. With David. A king that he particularly chose. Because David was a man after his own heart. And God made a covenant with him that from his line would come the Messiah. Remember there had been a king who preceded David, Saul. But God rejected him because his heart was not right with God. And he chose David. Remember that Jesus was known as the son of David. In Psalm 89, we find this covenant emphasized. It's an everlasting covenant. I will appoint to him my firstborn, whose throne and kingdom and reign will last forever. And God went on to say that if David's descendants, who sat upon the throne of Judah, would follow his ways, then there would never cease to be. God's blessing upon the kingdom. But as you and I well know, and as we see here in Jeremiah's prophecy, the kings, the priests, the people, they had all broken covenant with God. Their hearts had become unfaithful to God. They still worshiped God with their lips, as Isaiah said, but their hearts were far from God. They were ever hearing the word of God, but they could not perceive it. It was meaningless to them. It had no effect upon their hearts. Now, every covenant that God made ended in failure for only one reason. Sin. It was because of sin that people did not keep their covenant with God, no matter who it was. That was the bottom line reason. And God identified to Jeremiah the root of this inevitable failure. In chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, God said, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. God had said to the prophet Samuel when he went to Bethlehem, directed by the Lord to choose a king who would take the place of Saul who had been unfaithful. While Samuel was looking at the sons of Jesse and thinking perhaps this is the one or this, God spoke to him and said, I do not look at things as a human looks at things. 
People look on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. And I have found among the sons of Jesse a man who is after my own heart. Now, we know that David failed the Lord. He did things that no doubt he would never have dreamed he could ever do. And yet, as God says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. The seed of sin is in every one of our hearts. The potential to do the most egregious of sins is within every single one of us. You and I might say, oh, I would never do this and I would never do that. But the reality is, the seed of sin is in us. And there is no telling what we will do. Our hearts will deceive us. The only one who truly knows what is in our hearts and what we will do at any given moment in a certain situation is God and God alone. So here we have an irremediable dilemma. Any and every human heart was and is incapable of upholding their part of the covenant agreement. And we have seen this. Go back in scripture and read it. Everyone proved to be incapable of keeping their part of the covenant agreement. God cannot release himself from any covenant agreement. Here are the words that we read in Numbers chapter 23. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? God made a covenant with his people Israel. You obey me, I will bless you and take extraordinary and unimaginable care of you. But if you break your covenant commitment to me, then I will have to punish you. That was no different and no less than any covenant that would be made between two people. Israel failed. They were incapable of keeping their covenant with God. And so God, as we read in Jeremiah, as we hear him speaking, is bound, obligated to punish his people. And yet here God said, I will make a new covenant with you. How will this covenant be able to be effective when at the root of the human heart is this sinfulness that makes it impossible to keep the promises that one has made to God? God makes a promise to promise breakers and declares, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. How does God 
resolve this irremediable dilemma of making a covenant with people that will last, people who are incapable of keeping that covenant. Well, of all the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, it is Jeremiah's prophecy which contains the most references to covenant. In Isaiah, the Lord had promised to make an everlasting covenant. And now in Jeremiah, he declares that he will make a new covenant. And notice the words that God uses. He will make one that is fundamentally different from all preceding covenants. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. How can this covenant succeed when others have failed? And how can it succeed when it involves a party that is so deeply flawed and sinful that they are utterly incapable of faithfulness? As I said, the Lord detailed this new covenant in chapters 31 to 33. 34 times. Look at this, 34 times God used the words, I will, as he elaborates on the provisions and blessing of this new covenant. 34 times God says, I will lead them beside streams of water. I will give them joy and gladness instead of mourning. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive their sins of rebellion against me. Those four times and 30 more, God declares what he will do for a people who are so deeply sinful and flawed. I want to take you back for a moment. It was during the ratification of the covenant of blessing with Abraham that God implicitly revealed how he would accomplish the possibility of this new covenant. We read about it in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham had just come from conquering those kings that had taken his nephew and family hostage after their raid on Sodom. He had met the king of Salem, Melchizedek, who pronounced a blessing over him. And now God came to Abraham to make a covenant with him. The covenant was made in the typical fashion that covenants were made in Abraham's time. Abraham took a sacrifice, an animal, and he cut it in pieces. And he arranged those pieces on the ground. As part of the covenant ceremony, both parties would walk among those pieces. And they would make this statement. May this be what happens to me and my children. If I and my descendants fail to keep the responsibilities of this covenant. You see, it wasn't a contract like we make contracts. It was binding 
it was very sacred. But here's what we read in the story. Abraham watched over those sacrifices, waiting for God to come. He kept the birds away during the day. But as the sun set, Abraham fell into a deep slumber. And when God showed up, he showed up as a pot and a flaming torch. And those two representatives moved among the pieces without Abraham. Understand what is taking a place, what is taking place here. God is walking alone among the pieces of sacrifice. God is declaring that he was accepting responsibility and consequences for both parties of the covenant. God was obligating himself on behalf of the descendants of Abraham. May this be what happens to me if I fail to keep the terms of this covenant. And now, God explicitly reveals how he will accomplish it. We read in chapter 33, verses 15 and 16. In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. There are three words that are in these lines that you and I need to take note of. Righteous, right, and righteousness. Notice the pronouncement that is made. This will be his name. The Lord, the covenant one, is our righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, we read, For God said to him, meaning to Jesus, the Son of God. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Now, the Lord declared three things about this righteous branch here in Jeremiah. The first one, he would possess as his inherent quality the nature that only God possesses, righteousness. None of us are righteous on our own. Our best attempts at righteousness are as filthy rags. But this one who God has promised would be inherently righteous. That would be his nature. Secondly, as a descendant of David, he would be fully human. So he has the righteousness of God, and he has the ancestry of David. And thirdly, he would accomplish what no one else could do, covenant fulfillment. 
Remember, everyone had failed in keeping covenant. But this one who is coming, the righteous branch, the descendant of David, the one who will be called the Lord our righteousness, he would fulfill the covenant. He would do what is just and right throughout the land. Let me just make a note about this word right. When you look at the Hebrew word that is used here, it means righteousness or doing what is righteous. But then it comes from a root word that means to make righteous, to exonerate. This would be the work that Jesus would do. For those who are sinners, he would make them righteous in the sight of God. And they would be righteous not because of what they had done, but because of him, the Lord, our righteousness. Concerning Jesus, who guarantees a better covenant with God, the writer to Hebrews tells us, because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need, the kind of representative we need, because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. Now, the writer to Hebrews tells us that Jesus became our covenant provision on the basis of an oath. That oath was made even before human existence. Even before Genesis chapter 1, God made a covenant agreement. He made an oath with his son, declaring that he would be a priest forever. Do you understand what God has done for us? God took into account that our hearts are desperately wicked. And that we would always be, no matter who we were or when we lived, unable to keep our covenant agreement with God. And so even before God created the first human being who would fail, God made provision for our sin. And he determined a new covenant, one that would not be based upon someone's ability to keep the promises, but one that would be based upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness in keeping covenant with God. Twice the writer to the Hebrews presents to us the new covenant promises made by God in Jeremiah's new covenant prophecy of chapters 31 to 33. 
And he presents those words that God spoke through Jeremiah, the promise of a new covenant, as now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Look at these words. First of all, from chapter 8. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel in that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be with my people, and they will not need to teach their neighbors. Nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. How is this possible? God will not remember failure. He will not remember covenant transgression. He cannot overlook sin. He cannot excuse it. He cannot disregard it. He is not a man that he would lie. He cannot enter into covenant and ever break it, whether in terms of responsibility or consequences. We read in chapter 10 these words. For it was God's will for us to be made holy, to be made right by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Our high priest, our human descendant of David, our substitute, offered himself to God in all of his righteousness as a single sacrifice for sins good for all time. For by that one offering, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Now notice this. We have read words of the Father and words of the Son. We have read in Jeremiah, God promising a new covenant and then declaring that it would take place through the righteous branch, the descendant of David. Now the third person of the Trinity enters into the picture and testifies that this is so. For he says, the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit was inspiring Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit was speaking the words of the Lord. This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember 
their sins and lawless deeds. And where sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. You and I have looked at the truths that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. That he was determined to be our salvation and the payment for our sin, even before Genesis chapter 1. That God had taken into account our sinfulness and determined that there would be a time when he would enter into a covenant, a new covenant. One in which he made his own son accountable for your sin and my sin. It is my belief that when God established that covenant of blessing with Abraham. And those two representations, those two symbols of God's presence walked among the pieces of the sacrifices. That it was God the Father and it was God the Son. And God was saying, let this happen to you, my son. The people will not be able to keep covenant, but you will bear the sins of all the world. And the son saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus willingly entered into that covenant commitment. And the Holy Spirit testifies to us that because of Jesus, the words that God promised through Jeremiah are fulfilled for us. His righteousness has atoned for our sins. To such an extent that no other sacrifice is necessary, but we are made righteous through Jesus. And so the righteous branch who guaranteed a new covenant has enabled us to become what no one ever could be forever right with God. You and I read in the Gospels that after the Passover meal, on the night he was betrayed into the custody of sinful humanity, Jesus took the cup, which represented God's redemption, and he offered his thanks to the covenant Lord, his Father. And then he shared that cup with his disciples, all of whom would break their promises to him. And as they drank from the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is for the forgiveness of sins for many. Drink from it, all of you. There that evening at the side of Jesus was the apostle John. Years later, he wrote to the congregation in his home church these words. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only for our sins, but the sins of all the world. Every one of us, and everyone who has ever lived, are promise breakers. There is no difference, all of sin and fall short before the glory of God. John writes earlier in his letter and said, if anyone says he is not a sinner, the truth of God is not in him. But if anyone confesses his sin, God is faithful and just. And on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ will forgive the one who is confessing their sins and will purify them from all unrighteousness. Every one of us has sinned, broken promise, fallen short. If you have never come to Jesus Christ today to enter into the work that he has done for you so that you might be righteous with God, I urge you today, come to the Father and say, Lord, I am a sinner. And I know that I have done wrong, but I accept by faith what Jesus has done for me to make me right with you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, but your relationship with him has grown distant, maybe it is that you have come to the place that you're no longer troubled by what's not right in your life. Maybe you so easily follow the ways of this world, which is at odds with God. I urge you to come back to Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the righteous one. Hallelujah. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because he became the payment for our sin. Because he is our righteousness. We have no standing before you today and we have no relationship with you apart from him and what he has done for us. And yet because of him, we have every standing that he possesses. Father, thank you for this wonderful new covenant he kept the promise that we could not keep. He paid the debt that we could not pay. Thank you for your amazing grace. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would enable us to see Jesus with greater clarity and greater gratitude than we ever have before. May we long for hearts that become more faithful to you, more devoted to you, more loving to you. 
because of the great love that you have shown to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May your word richly remain in our hearts, we pray, to the honor and the glory of Jesus, our Savior, and our righteousness. Amen. Amen.